Dear Sugar is supported by The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Allman. This is Dear Sugar Radio. That's Angela Freeman and Wonderly. Wow, welcome everyone. <laughs> Thanks for coming out. We're here tonight for really a special recording of Dear Sugar Radio Live. And that is, it's part of this big thing called Writers Resist. <laughs> How many of you in the room are, are writers? How many of you love, love someone who is a writer? <laughs> so as you all know, um, the, this past election season was a brutal one, and many of us woke up, um, or maybe, maybe never went to sleep the night of the election, in a state of despair and fear and befuddlement and anger. And very quickly, uh, everyone I know started saying, what next, what do we do? And one of those people uh, is the wonderful poet Erin Ballou, and she sent me an email pretty immediately and said, we need to do something. Obviously, writers and artists of all stripes have always made a contribution to the, the, the political life of, of this nation and in, indeed to the health of our democracy. And we need to have collectively some kind of answer. And this is how the idea of Writers Resist was born. She asked me to do an event in New York City. And I said, but I live in Portland. <laughs> but then it was this idea, what happened is writers all over the nation started saying the same thing to Aaron. Let's make this actually a national movement and have uh, events in cities across the nation. Right. <laughs> and so we did that. That's right. So Writers Resist is uh, having events in 90 different cities. Uh, not just uh, in the United States, but also abroad from Boston to Hong Kong to right here in Portland. And what you'll hear tonight is really uh, conversations on how to rebuild uh, an America that embodies our best ideals, that is truly by the people and for the people uh, with liberty and justice for all. That is the agenda for tonight. So right as soon after um, I 
talked to Erin and said, okay, let's do an event in Portland. Uh, she introduced me to Wendy Chin Tanner, who's going to be our first guest tonight. She and I essentially organized this event together. She was already making an event happen, and we decided to join forces, and she's been an amazing partner in bringing this event to the stage tonight. Um, she's the author of the poetry collection Turn, which was a finalist for the Oregon Book Awards. She's a former academic specializing in race, identity, and culture, and she continues to write and educate on these topics. Wendy was born and raised in New York City, and she's the proud daughter of immigrants. Please join me in welcoming Wendy to the stage. Wendy. Hi, everyone. So tell us, what, you know, here we are, what, what gave you the impulse to organize in this way, organize writers in, in Oregon and Portland in response to the election? Well, it was really a coping mechanism for my own anxiety. You know, mm -hmm. I, I feel <laughs> like um, I'm the sort of person who needs to do something so as not to feel that sort of hopelessness and despair. And um, seeing the call to action on Aaron's um, Facebook post just really galvanized me and, and um, made me excited to join forces with our fellow writers because stories are, are so important. Stories, I feel, are the ways that people understand the world around them. And so they're the conduit for empathy, and empathy is the engine for change. So I, I felt like that was a really good way for, for us to collectively get together and make that kind of change. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, so you're the mother of a nine-year-old and two-year-old daughter. I know a lot of us uh, who uh, are parents um, were, that was a tough night and a lot, and, and next morning, and next week, and actually it's still tough. Um, it's still tough. It's still yeah. tough, and it's gonna yeah. be tough, so we need to get tough. Um, but the, the question I have for you, sort of how did you deal with that, especially thinking about talking to your nine-year-old in particular? Certainly, um, I mean, not only that, but as, as, the, uh, as a woman of color who's married to a white man, there were a lot of issues that, you know, are externally political for the most part that came crashing into our home, yeah. you know? There's a second wave feminist saying that the personal is political. And boy, is that the case <laughs> now. Mm -hmm. You know, I am, by virtue of the fact that I'm Chinese American, am less safe than my husband may be. And, you know, we had a situation actually around Thanksgiving time where um, we were visiting my parents in New York and my husband took my older daughter to Connecticut on public transportation to uh, visit in-laws. And I realized that if I were to have gone with them, I would be potentially endangering my family. Mm. And that, that was just such a shocking moment because I've, I've never faced that possibility before. And it was in some way humiliating or at least initially humiliating. And then I realized I shouldn't be humiliated. I, the shame should be on those who are making that happen, not on me. I don't need to internalize that. Mm -hmm. And that was right around the time that I saw Aaron's call to action, so that was very good timing. So we have received a letter. Should we turn to the letter? Yeah, I think point? so. Yeah, it's, it's a, a perfect um, segue. You know, one of the things that happened in the uh, days after and hours, maybe even minutes after um, the election is our inbox, started to fill up at Dear Sugar Radio with letters uh, like this one. So I wanted to read it and then we can, we can talk about it. Dear Sugars, what does radical empathy look like in this post-election landscape? How do I love 
or even share a meal with someone who voted for a man who hired a white nationalist as his senior advisor? How do I have empathy for them while also supporting the many people Trump's policies will oppress? How do I let go of my anger when a seven-year-old says she's scared her mother will be deported? How do we move forward from here, signed, angry and sad? Wow. Angry and sad. I, I think half the country is angry and sad right there with you. I'm angry and sad, too. And the letter makes me wonder, though, why we believe that we have to get over being angry or to stop being sad or to even love someone in order to have empathy for them. Mm -hmm. You know, can, can we not honor our own emotions and still have empathy? I, I think the answer is yes. You know, if, if I have a disagreement with my husband and I'm angry with him and he's angry with me, the way forward is, I think, to stand in my own position very firmly and to, to understand my own emotions first before being able to listen to him and, and vice versa. You know, if I squelch my emotions or if I artificially get over myself first, I mean, isn't that compromising myself? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I wonder if we need to question this idea of empathy a little bit more. Yeah, I think that that's come up so much in the cultural context with, especially those days after the election, maybe the, the first few weeks, there was this question of, should we have, you know, what does unity mean? What does harmony mean? What does peace mean? And what I think that I was hearing from the voices that spoke most intelligently to me, or at least touched upon my truth, is that, that you know, anger is, just as you said, um, you, to, be, to have empathy doesn't mean that you don't have anger, that you don't hold people accountable for their words, their actions, their decisions, their policies. And, you know, I think that anger, of course, historically has been such a beautiful engine of what turned out to be justice and what turned out to be love. And so I, I, I was not one to rush to, you know, let us, let us all be one nation, let us give this president a chance. Um, I, I am not of that mind. Um, <laughs> right? Which is different from just throwing a temper tantrum for four years, right? Um, and I think that that to me is, it, it's not always, uh, the question isn't, are you ang angry? It is, how might you best channel your rage? And this is the question I am really wanting us to, to ask and answer tonight. Right. Do you, how are you, how are, have you come to any ideas about that? How might you channel your rage? Well, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about the question of radical empathy and what that means. And I wonder if maybe we can have like a two-step plan for <laughs> radical empathy. You know, like maybe step one is actually self-empathy, where we first honor our own emotions. And from that point, we can then discern whether or not it's practical and safe to engage in the next step of empathy, which maybe we can call that strategic empathy, maybe Step two is strategic empathy. And I was thinking about this, kind of drawing from my background in social science. Um, I was thinking about strategic empathy in terms of uh, this method that's used in social science called cultural relativism, which is a way for social scientists to understand the thoughts and belief systems of other cultures that are radically different from our own and that may even seem irrational. So if we translate that or adapt that to this idea of strategic empathy in our particular moment, then maybe we can use that as a means for 
actively listening to and understanding uh, an opinion that is completely different from our own, that we don't agree with, from someone that we don't have to love, and someone that we're still very, very angry with. And maybe that will allow us to have a starting point from which to have a conversation that's capable of moving somewhere, you know? Because I think that if, if we say the same thing over and over again to someone who doesn't get where we're coming from, it doesn't matter how loudly we say it and how many times we say it, they're just not gonna get it. Right. Same thing ha happens in a marriage. Yes. Just FYI. <laughs> um, so, you know, this ears and tears sugar or, radio. Or, we can't forget that sort of personal, right. yeah. Or, or sometimes a professional relationship. Or even professional, yeah, that's right. It that happens too. We are in perfect harmony, Steve Almond, and I'm sticking at, to at it. At all times. At all times. <laughs> we, just, we just stare at one another from across the chairs in little studios and we just say, radical empathy. Radical empathy. Radical empathy. So have you had the occasion... <laughs> have you had the occasion to have such a conversation to experiment with engaging, engaging with somebody who really is difficult and offensive well, I, I had occasion to have a difficult conversation with my mother-in-law, actually. Mm. And not because she's a Trump voter, she is not. And not because she doesn't love me, because she does. And we love each other. So we come from a place already of a kind of foundational empathy, right? But she was somewhat unaware of the kind of immediate reversal of th the way in which I live in the world, I suppose, because all of a sudden, I have felt unsafe to, for example, walk my toddler to preschool, you know. So she didn't understand and, and thought that that was perhaps an, an overreaction. And in that conversation, you know, when someone tells you that you're overreacting, I mean, that's pretty much like, you know, waving a, a red flag to a bull, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but particularly in this kind of context, because, you know, I felt like she was... Um, Dis dismissing, and I felt like she was kind of shutting down my valid emotions. So yes, I practiced the two-part empathy. It was kind of a gnarly situation to begin with, but it turned out really great. And I think we were both able to hear each other because I think we need to give people a bridge, an imaginative bridge for, you know, understanding our position. Yeah. And, and that's through storytelling to some degree, and that's through identification. You have to allow them to walk in your shoes. On that note, this idea of uh, walking in another person's shoes, we will also be answering your questions from the audience. So some of you might have received like index cards and so forth. So if you do have a question for us, we are trying to keep the questions to the sort of political, social stuff. So if you're having an affair, write to us next week. Yeah. <laughs> um, Unless you're having an affair with a Trump voter. You can just, That's right. That, that, that totally qualifies. That totally qualifies. Yeah. So we want to thank you, Wendy, um, for, you. for joining us today. Please give Wendy a round of applause. Thank you, Wendy. Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Visit BetterHelp.com Sugars today to get 10% off your first month. So in this next part of the show, you're going to hear a series of letters by writers composed to America. We came up with this idea because, of course, writers have a long history of contributing to the social, political, and cultural life of America. And we thought at this moment, what better time to hear some of the diverse voices that writers have to offer. In this montage, you're going to hear Samia Bashir, Renee Denfeld, and Cooper Lee Bombardier. And we'll hear from the writers Sam Rojas Chua, Carrie Luna, and Lydia Yuknovich. Enjoy. Dear America, on the last day of the year, I watched my mother untie her long black hair on the bed, and she said, cut, cut tussocks of my hair and offer them to the seas, because we don't know the language of buoyancy. Because these days are the days of leviathans, their tongues writing their names on, of our dead on the surf, names that hung on trees, dead names of victims who uttered the real name of God, or whatever name he goes by these days. This is what Filipinos do, she says. We call to nature to remind us about the impermanence of fear. So put the kettle on for days like these, days when the eyes ache and necks resemble hardened cliffs. Necks heavy from a brace made of anviled words placed by ticks that have locked their teeth on our soft skin. You, son of rivers, son of Maya, son of Sari Sari, America is your home now. America, land of biographies, land of beginnings, land of bloom. Let's be scared together, but only for a day. This is a terrifying time, but it can also be an opportunity. See, the monster so many were privileged to ignore has been unmasked. The monster our black and brown neighbors have seen all along. The monster our LGBTQ neighbors have seen all along. The monster our Muslim neighbors have seen all along. The monster our Jewish neighbors have seen all along. Everyone can see it now. And when we were sold for poker chips, left cold, left thawed, left bent into the yop, ass up, let be, let air, bones, unknowns, ash, everywhere. While you've been engaging in friendly debate online, immigrants in your community are scrambling to figure out how to keep their entire lives from being uprooted and discarded. People with disabilities in your community are wondering how they, will, they are going to live, period, without access to healthcare. People of color in your community over the past couple of months have experienced an uptick of aggressions, both macro and micro. Physical attacks, death threats, and doubling down on oppressive tactics. When you say all lives matter, you are silencing the voices of those who clearly feel their lives have not mattered. I was going to tell you a really quick story tonight. Um, as some of you know, I was very lucky to adopt my kids from foster care. And my oldest son came to me with a lot of problems. He was uh, considered, honestly, a troubled kid. The kind of kid that people expect to end up in prison, just like my clients. He was afraid, and fear makes animals out of all of us. I stuck with him month after month, year after year. 
I would hold him in my arms and I would tell him, I will not let you be bad. I was trying to save his soul, but I was also trying to save my own because we're all connected. Today, that troubled young boy is now a wonderful young man, kind and considerate and loving. And I believe that is our country right now in a nutshell. Are we going to hold it in our arms? Are we going to refuse to let it be bad? Are we going to take every step in our power, month after month, year after year, to make sure it grows up healthy and good? Are we all going to walk out of here tonight knowing that what we do matters? Our one vote, our one action, our one person at a time multiplying into something good. I hope we write ourselves back to life. I hope that we double down on what we mean when we say writer so that the definition explodes and reconstitutes around writing as a socially vital activity. Remember that? Remember how people died for it? Remember how people were sent into exile for it, for saying out loud, to dare to say out loud again, this is wrong, stop. I'm going to stand in front of that bullet so the person behind me won't be shot. I hope that when we step into our writerly lives, we can only come alive by and through each other, by and through our amazing and itchy and weird, beautiful differences. I hope that hope doesn't ever come from looking up at an old man ever again. But instead, from looking into each other's eyes, and eyes, pronoun, I hope we stand up inside our various languages with ferocious love, loving fiercely in otherness, and courage, and that we aim for what matters in the world, if we can even remember what matters in the world, whether or not anyone ever remembers our names or clicks like. Let it be true that we wrote the world and each other back to life, that we didn't die. Let that be the new book. Now, if you want to hear the full letters from those amazing writers, please go to wbur.org slash Dear Sugar and scroll down to the bottom of the page and you'll find a link to hear each of them performing those letters in full. So listen, it's time for a little bit of music. And we are honored to have Colin Malloy, the front man of the Decemberist, here to join us tonight. Um, this is a song I wrote in uh, 2011, and it's sort of about unity. Here we come to a turning of the season Witness to the oik towards the sun A neighbor's blessed burden within reason 
Comes a burden born of all in one And nobody, nobody knows Let the yoke fall from our shoulders Pitching hard to starboard Rest its head on summer's freckled knees And nobody, nobody knows Let the oak fall from our shoulders Don't carry it all, don't carry it all We are all our hands and holders Beneath this bold and brilliant sun At this I swear to all At this I swear to all and There are wreath of trillium and ivy Laid upon the body of a boy and Lazy will alone come from its hiding Return this quiet searcher to the soil So raise a glass to turnings of the season And watch it as it arcs towards the sun And you must bear your neighbor's burden within reason And your labors will be born when all is done And nobody, nobody knows Let the yoke fall from our shoulders Don't carry it all, don't carry it beside me love okay. so the last time I saw you it was a couple weeks before the election and we were with your lovely wife Carson and my lovely husband Brian mm -hmm. in a van in the on the back roads of 
Romania. Coming out of Transylvania. That's right. We went to Dracula's castle. And you told me this great story, actually, about your son, Hank. Yeah. um, I am the father of a a 10-year-old who, you know, is, is... coming into this world and, and is taking in all this information. He also happens to be autistic, and anxiety is a big part of his autism. And in fact, he calls himself a catastrophist. And so... <laughs> wow. And, and so when he's... I know he sort of had Trump's number early on, I think. And so we would be listening to the radio, and he'd be like, do you think Trump is going to win? I think like, like a lot of parents, it's like, no, there's, there's just no way. And he kept saying, I, th- I think he is. <laughs> and he kept on kind of perseverating on it. He started identifying as what he called a Trumpian eschatologist, is what he was. Wow, his he's son- 10? Yeah, somebody who <laughs> studies the impending apocalypse post-Trump. And I mean, we all sh- this We should have had him on the show, is that yeah, what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, he would be a great... Yeah. <laughs> he'd be a great interviewer. Um, and the night of the election... I was just astounded to sit there and watch the, uh, the results come in. And I knew that I would have to have this conversation with my anxiety-ridden autistic son about the fact that his sort of, this nightmare has sort of coming true and was prepping myself for it and wondering how it was going to affect him, how, how he was going to move on from it. And so the next morning I went into his room and he saw me come and he said, okay, so who won? And I said, Trump did. And he said, I told you so. <laughs> and uh, in some ways, he, it turned out he was, I was prepared for him to like fall apart, but actually he was more prepared than anybody that I knew <laughs> and was like, okay, well, let's just move on from here then. What do we do now? Um, which was sort of in- incredible. Wow. So what does it mean to be the father of a, of a child with autism in, in, this, in these times? It's terrifying. I mean, we're, we're a, um, we've elected a man who has openly mocked a disabled person. I mean, you, you can't just get more bald-faced than that. I think it's terrifying for the, the disabled communities, the autistic community. And not that the GOP is any better as we're looking towards the repeal of ACA. I mean, that has such a huge effect on the disabled community, particularly autistic kids who rely on their, um, their parents' insurance. for long. So the fact that they, he could stay on our insurance for 20, till he's 26 is a big deal. I mean, there's just so many facets of it that will, that will affect his life. And uh, it's, it's frankly terrifying. Colin, has it changed, or do you think about your role as, uh, I mean, I've been a fan of your music for years, but now I wonder whether you feel a sense of, well, should this affect my work? You know, there is a strong tradition of protest music in this country as as an invaluable and really powerful tool for social change. Does that affect you, or do you just create and it's going to come out how it's going to come out? I, well, I, would, I wouldn't think it would be anything forced. Um, I, I think it'll find its way in, as it often does. Often, music can be a filter for those things. Also, music is an escape. And so I'm just I'm sort of waiting to see, as I'm working, which side of that coin I end up on. Would you play another song for us? Happily, happily. Mm, yes, yes.
Uh, this one's going to be a little more in tune. It's a bonus. Um, this, is, this is an old song. Um, it's sort of the theme song of inclusion. And, and I know that we're kind of bandying about the word radical a lot tonight, but I'm going to ask something very radical, and that is to have you all sing along. Because this is meant to be sung with as many voices as possible. Also, when this was written, it's interesting, there are two verses that were left out. This is a little Woody Guthrie song. Um, two verses that were left out because they were deemed too radical at the time, and I'm reinserting them here. As I was walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is yours. This land is my land, from California to the New York Islands, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Well, I've roamed and I've rambled, and I've followed my footsteps. Sparkling sands of her diamond deserts And all around me that voice was sounding This land was made for you and me This land is your land This land is my land From California to the New York Islands, from the Redwood Forest, to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. As I went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign said, private property. But on the other side, it didn't say nothing. That side was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Islands, from the Redwood Forest. Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. In the shadow of the steeple, I saw my people. By the relief office, I seen my people. As they stood there hungry, I stood there asking. Is this land made for you and me? But nobody living 
can ever stop me as I go walking that freedom highway nobody living can ever make me turn back this land was made for you and me all right last this land is your land this land is my land from california to the new york islands from the redwood forest to the gulf stream waters this land was made for you and me All right, Colin Malloy, everyone. That's Colin Malloy. <laughs> wow. So we have to read the credits. Yes, we have to do the credits. Oh, my favorite part, the credits. Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Amory Sievertson. Our theme music is by the wonderful Portland band, Wonderly. Please subscribe to Dear Sugar on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and write to us at dearsugarradio.com. Uh, no, dearsugarradio at gmail.com. Yes, that's it. You always forget that part. I'm very bad with electronics. <laughs> that's it for part one of our Writer's Resist edition of Dear Sugar Radio at the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon, 